The following audio is from Summit Church. For more information on Summit Church, visit www.summitonline.tv. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are continuing through just our three-week series as we kick off the new year. We're calling it Focus because that's exactly what we want to do. We want to make sure that as a church, we're reminded ever so often about our mission. And our mission is simply this, to make disciples for the glory of God. We want to be a church that makes disciples, that makes disciples because we believe that that's exactly how Jesus asked us, His church, to do it. When he ascended into heaven, he went back trusting his church to be the mechanism to take to the world the good news that he is God, that he is Lord, and that he conquered death, and that through faith in him, we might have eternal life. That's our mission. And I believe as a church, we do a decent job of fulfilling that mission, but there are things that could make us even better that would allow us to do it with a little bit more effectiveness. And so for this year, we have identified the fact that connection, being a team in this, not feeling alone or on an island, connection, generosity, and prayer are three things we want to focus on. They're not the only three things, but they're the things we want to focus on. So in week one of this series, we talked about connection. I asked, do you have that person at 1 a.m. that you can call, that person that knows you better than anyone else, that person who's going to push you to the Lord? Are you that person for other people? Last week, we talked about generosity. We talked about giving and the importance of that. But the main thing I wanted you to walk away with was this. We get so we can give. Everything that we have is from the Lord. And when we receive that from him, we have to realize it's not ours. It's just ours to give back, to be generous with. And today I want to talk about prayer, the importance of prayer. Now, if you were able to join us on January 1st or you caught it online, you know that I talked about prayer just four weeks ago. And so you're going, man, that's a lot of talk about prayer. Well, one, I don't think we can ever talk too much about prayer. But on January 1st, we talked specifically about how God does exceedingly abundantly more than we could ever imagine when we pray. When we go before him, he is powerful enough and capable enough to blow our minds in his response. And so we looked at prayer from that perspective. But I know it's not sufficient for all of us to just be told, hey, when you pray, it's going to be incredible. Some of us need very practical steps. So what we're going to do today to finish this series, and the next week we will be back in the Gospel of Luke, what we're going to do today to talk about prayers, we're going to turn to the most practical book in Scripture. We're going to turn to the book of James. We're going to be in the fifth chapter. That's the very end of his book. It's a book that lays out this theme. You can't be double-minded. You can't play both sides. When it comes to the way you talk, you can't say you love God and then curse someone in the next word. You can't do that. When it comes to how you treat people, you can't show favoritism to some and then treat others like they're absolute outcasts. You can't do that. You are either for God and for people or you're not. And the whole book just kind of lines this out. And then chapter five appears to really have a test. There are actually two tests in it. And it's ironic what the two tests in chapter five are. The first one is how do you handle your wealth? Kind of what we talked about last week. Now, this was unintentional, but kind of what we talked about last week. Are you generous? Are you open-handed? That's one of the first tests. And the solution to being generous and open-handed is to humble yourself and trust God. To humble yourself, trust God, to know that he's got you. And if you gave it all away, you would still have enough. 
because that's how God works. But humbly, you can't say, I'll just do it myself. I'll be the strong one. I, I will get through this. And then the second test is when do you pray? Do you pray constantly, continually, as 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says? Is that something you do? Or do you choose to fail in humility and go, you know what? I know God's out there. I believe in that. But I'm not going to bother him. I'm not going to go to him. And really, the probably reason I'm not going to go to him is because I'm not sure you can really do anything about this anyway. When do you pray? Why do you not pray? Very practical reasons and times to pray. And then forcing you to look at those and go, do I? And if I don't, why not? So that's where we're going. That's where we're going to start today is in James chapter 5, verse 13. And we're shown in this passage that if you're suffering today, if you're suffering, you should pray. Very short. Is anyone among you in trouble? Anyone listening today in trouble? Let them pray. That's one reason and one time you should pray. The word trouble there is interesting. It's used, the same Greek word is used in chapter 5, verse 10, and it implies suffering misfortune. Has anyone suffered misfortune? If so, let them pray. Is anything bad happening to you or people around you right now? Are you currently having to endure or persevere through anything? And if that's the case, I need you to think for a moment, just pause and identify that. What, what is it? James says, if you can think of anything that you're currently enduring, any misfortune that you're currently feeling, then you should pray for yourself or others. Misfortune is anything that we would look at and say, that's not fortunate. That's not how I drew this up. That's not how I would desire this to be. Is anyone suffering misfortune? You should pray in order to persevere, in order to walk together with God through this. God is not just something we add on at the end. We either humble ourselves and invite God into our misfortune, or we do it alone with a lot of pride. And I think far too often we, specifically as American Christians, we go, I, I, can, I can do this. I can get through this. I, I don't need to go to God just yet. We're not, we're not to that point. And James says, if you're suffering any kind of misfortune, if there's anything that's causing you to persevere, you should pray. Very next breath, those who are happy should pray. They should pray through praise. Look at the rest of verse 13. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Songs of praise are just another form of prayer. Let me show you. Communing with God, we do so through prayer, but we also do so through worship because worship is just talking to him. It's singing to him. It's declaring his goodness. It's declaring our need for him. That's the same thing that we do in prayer. We're just doing it to a song a lot of times. And you don't have to have a song to worship, by the way. You don't have to have a song to praise. Is praise part of your life? How often in the normal rhythm of your life do you just genuinely say, thank you, God. Whew, God, I'm so Glad you were there. I'm so glad you decided to unleash your power and move in that way. For many, it's as often as we almost rear in the car and go, oh, thank you, God. I stopped in time. That should not be the only time we thank God. 
should be a natural rhythm of our life. Worship and praise should be a natural rhythm of our life. When we're happy, when things are good, we should still be praying. We should still be praising. We get this wrong so often because we're like, when it's good, it's good. I don't need to pray then. I need to pray when I'm afflicted. I need to pray when I'm in trouble. I need to pray in the misfortune. But James goes, no, no, no. You pray in both occasions, in the good and the bad. And in taking just this first verse, we see that prayer should be a huge part of our life. Most times things are either good and praiseworthy or they're misfortunate and needing God to move. There's very little gray area in there. There's very little middle. So simple summary, good times and bad should always be praying. Always be praying. Don't just pray when you have no other options. Charles Spurgeon says it this way. Prayer can never be in excess. That's a simple statement, but let us sink in. Prayer can never be in excess. You can never pray too much. You can never think, ah, I think I'm bothering God. No, it doesn't exist. He wants relationship with you. He wants you to pray. Prayer can never be in excess. There can never be too much. Who else should pray? Those who are sick. Those who are sick, they should pray. James chapter five, verses 14 through 16. Is any one of you sick? You should call on the elders of the church to pray over you and anoint you with oil in the name of the Lord. Okay, now we'll unpack that here in a moment, but it's very important that you understand. Is anyone sick? You should seek the Lord in your sickness and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. James is saying, if you are physically sick, you should call on the elders of the church. Now you're like, I'm sure who the elders are, okay? Well, the good news is tonight at five o'clock in the Norman campus, we're having a business meeting. We're actually voting on all of our elders. You can come tonight and see them all, okay? That's January 22nd. Come tonight at five o'clock, meet all the elders. That, that would be an amazing thing to do. Now, the word there for elder is presbyteros, so it literally means pastors, bishops, elders. So, If you are sick, call on the pastors, the elders, the bishops of the church. Call on the spiritual leaders of the church. Now, you go, I don't know their numbers. That's great. We got these prayer cards in our seat bags, but you can go to summitonline.tv forward slash prayer and fill out one online. And you know who that goes to? That prayer request saying, hey, I'm sick. So-and-so sick. We got this diagnosis. We don't know how to handle it. What do we do? What what do we do? I, I, I can't call on the elders. Help me. No, you can We try to make that as easy as possible, and we take it as serious as we possibly can. When a prayer request comes in, it unleashes the power of God as dozens of people, spiritual leaders in our church, begin to pray for you and your request. Whatever you fill out, we begin to pray for that. We talk about that. We think about that. We try to follow up on you regarding that request. We don't have to show up at your house to be praying, but we would. We would because that's part of the role of shepherding. That's part of the role of being your pastors. We want to be there. And if you're sick, we want to be there. Now, the thing we get kind of messed up on is the anointing with oil thing. So is that the only way to get healed if you're sick? You've got to be anointed with oil? No, no, no. While oil was used religiously in ceremonies, oftentimes in the first century, Okay, and it was used to consecrate, meaning set apart someone to the Lord. So it actually makes perfect sense. It's symbolic saying that person who has faith in Jesus, 
okay, is being set apart, consecrated by the anointing with oil. That's part of it. But also in the first century, and much more commonly in the first century, oil was used as medicine. So when James says, call on the elders of the church to pray over you, to invoke the power of God in your life, when he's saying that, and then to anoint you with oil, he's saying, hey, prayer and medicine can work together. And I love this. In the most practical book, it's saying, look, yes, prayer is powerful. God can heal anyone in anything, but you don't just have to rely on God. You can still get an antibiotic and you're not forsaking your faith. Prayer and medicine can work together to heal the sick person. And anyone reading this in the first century would have seen it that way. So the anointing with oil is not near as weird as it sounds to us 2,000 years later. The prayer offered in faith, that's huge. Because the prayer of the elders is for the person who still believes. My faith can cause God to move in your life. But when our faith combines, when your faith and my faith, when we pray together asking God to move for you or in the life of someone else, when faith is combined, I do believe it becomes even stronger. It says that when the prayer offered in faith makes a sick person well, the Lord will literally, literally rise them up from their sickbed. Okay, that's how that phrase is translated. And it's important to understand because some of you are sitting here going, my prayers weren't answered. James is making it sound like all you got to do is call the right person, do the right thing with the oil, pray the right prayer, and then all sickness is going to be cured. All sickness of those who have faith in the end will result in them being risen from their sickbed. Some to stand up and walk and live another 50 years. Others to go live in eternity with their Heavenly Father. It is true and unfortunate because we live in a fallen and broken and sinful world. It is true that some sickness ends in death. But God still rises them up from their sickbed. And that's how James can say this here. Now, when we see this, when we see what James is saying is that some sickness is the result of sin. That's what, that's what it appears to be saying. We've got to take this very, very carefully because, as I just said, sickness is not always the result of sin. In fact, it very seldom is the result of sin. God does not send sickness upon someone as a curse. Satan cannot cause you to be sick as a curse. That's not how it works. We get sick and there's sickness because we live in a broken world, period. But there are some sins that can cause sickness. And when you feel like on those rare occasions that you are physically sick because of some sin in your life, then it is on you to ask the Lord to show you that, to reveal that to you. I think that's why it's also important to bring others into that conversation so they can see your blind spots and go, am, am I causing this? Is this on me? Is this because of my sin? And then see verse 16 the very, very great solution. If for some reason that sickness you have deemed is the cause, is, is because of your sin, then what you do is you confess your sin to each other and pray for each other so that you'll be healed. Because that sin has been forgiven. 
All you've got to do to eradicate that sin and therefore be healed is to confess it, to get rid of it. The prescribed prescription for sin that causes sickness is confession. The prescribed prescription for other kinds of sickness just because of the brokenness of our world is prayer. The prescribed prescription for affliction and suffering is prayer. The prescribed prescription for joy is to praise and pray. And we do all of this because, as James finishes, prayer is powerful. It's effective. At Summit, we say that prayer unlocks the power of God. James 5, verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Prayer is powerful and effective when it is offered by a righteous person. Now, righteousness is imputed on a person because of Jesus Christ through their faith in him. So it is correct to say the prayer of a faith-filled person is powerful and effective. It's not the righteousness of the person. It's not the goodness of the person. It's not how good the person looks or how often they go to church. That has nothing to do with it. It is the faith-filledness of the person that makes prayer effective. We think the prayers of the saints are heard, but not ours. And that's just not true. We think, I'm, I'm too broken. And therefore, our brokenness, it pushes us away from God, when in reality, our brokenness and the understanding of it should push us towards God. The humbling, testing part of this that says, I'm not perfect, I never will be perfect, but I do know the one who is perfect, the rescuer who came to redeem me, who came to ransom me, who came to make me righteous, and I run to him. I don't avoid him for any reason. I run to him because in my running to him, that shows my faith, and my faith then unlocks his power. Andrew Murray, you probably don't know that name, but he's one of the giants of the faith of the last few centuries, and, and he studied prayer and he practiced prayer. And so therefore he wrote on prayer primarily. And he said this, we must begin to believe that God in the mystery of prayer, this is a man who devoted his life to prayer, both the study and the practice of, and he describes prayer and how it works as a mystery. That's telling to me. The mystery of prayer has entrusted us, prayer has entrusted us with a force that can move the heavenly world and can bring its power, the power of heaven, down to earth. How it works, he doesn't know, but through prayer, powerful, effective prayer, heaven hears and comes down and moves. That's what prayer can do. That's how powerful it is. And that's why Church James says there's nothing better you can do. Regardless of your circumstance or your situation, there's nothing better you can do than pray. Abraham Lincoln, maybe a more familiar name. He said this, I have been driven many times upon my knees, to my knees, by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. Nowhere else to go. My own wisdom and that of all about me seemed insufficient for that day. The great emancipator needed the greater emancipator, Jesus. 
Because in that moment, his strength was insufficient. I love the humility of that statement. And I love that we can see Abraham Lincoln and all that he did and all that he accomplished and to know that he did so from his knees. It speaks to the effectiveness of prayer and its power. Going back to Andrew Murray, just one more quote. He talks about how we should enter these times of powerful prayer to make sure that we're right in what we're doing. He says, each time before you intercede, before you go ask God on behalf of someone else or yourself, before you do that, be quiet first and worship God in his glory. See him for who he is. Think of what he can do. And that's a fun exercise if you've never done that. Try to picture what God could do in response to your prayer and your brain can't fathom it. And that's exactly what Ephesians 3.20 says. He's going to do more than you can imagine because he's God and you can't even imagine him. Think of what he can do and how he delights to hear the prayers of his redeemed people. How much God delights in hearing from you in knowing that you want to speak to him. Think then of your place and privilege in Christ. Think then of your place and privilege in Christ and expect great things. Why? Because the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. A church of prayer is a powerful church. And when I say a church, I don't mean summit. I mean you, the people of Summit. A church of prayer full of people of prayer is a powerful church. It'll be a church where the healing of individuals who are sick is common, where heaven comes and meets earth, where that void is narrowed to the point that you can't see the difference because the people are constantly in communion with the heavenly father bringing his power to move on and for the behalf of his people. A church where the broken want to belong because it's humility that pushes its members not to highlight themselves or to say, you should be more like me, but instead to turn to Jesus. A praying church is a humble church. And James said in the previous chapter, in chapter 4, he said that the reason why we don't see this more, the reason why we, we don't pray, the reason why we don't have this kind of power is simply this. Because what causes fights and quarrels among you? Well, they come from your own desires, those sinful desires that battle within you. I do what I don't want to do. That was Paul speaking. He, I don't know why I do it, but there's this desire in me that, that needs to be put to death. Verse two, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. And that's an obvious overstatement. He's not saying everyone kills who doesn't get what they want, but it's an overstatement. You desire and you can't have it, so it just frustrates you and it pushes you towards this evil. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight out of frustration and out of emptiness. And then he says, you do not have because you do not ask God. And even when you do ask, verse three, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get from God 
on your own pleasures. You covet, you want, you quarrel. You do this all because of the desires in your heart. And the reason you don't have is because you choose not to ask. And even when you do ask, you haven't checked the desires of your heart. And what James is saying here in chapter 4 is very simply this. Oftentimes when we go to God, we do so with an idol in our heart. We want this more than we want to be with God. And God, while he can unleash his power on our life, he chooses instead to discuss our heart with us and those desires that need to be addressed. So we do not have, because A, we either do not ask, or B, when we do ask, he wants to talk instead about our heart. But when, church, we have examined the desires of our heart. We've asked Jesus to come and put to death that sinful desire. And instead we walk with his spirit. When we go to God, God says, yes, my child, what can I do? After you've sat in silence to hear from him, after you have praised him as God and started to imagine how he could possibly respond to the struggles in your life, the afflictions, how he could possibly respond in joyous praise with you. I, I want you to celebrate because I want you to be blessed. As, as we start to think about that, as we start to understand how our prayer will move, as we start to think about all the people in our life who are sick and hurting and how God can move in their lives, then we don't ask for selfish reasons, but we ask for his glory to be known and for his power to be unleashed in our lives and the lives of others. We become a church that doesn't pray just because that's what a church is supposed to do. We become a church that prays because we believe that prayer unlocks the power of God. We become a church that prays because we can't think of anything better to do with our time and with our life. We can't think of any place we would rather be than in the presence of God. We become a church that prays because praying is just what we do. And I pray today that that could be said of you. And if today it can't be that you would make that the desire of your heart, you would make that the direction of this year that to spend more time in his presence, to not just pray as a last resort, but to pray when you're suffering, when you're having misfortune, when you're happy, when those around you are sick, you would pray because prayer is powerful and effective. Jesus, help us to see your power unleashed. Help us to see what it looks like to stand righteous before you in faith and allow our faith then to unlock your power in our lives and the lives of others. May we be a church of prayer, Jesus, for your glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen.